everyone, and welcome to Light Conversations on Trauma podcast. Bringing conversations around hardship into the light. It's me, Peter Middleton, here, and I'll be hosting this podcast. This is a space for intimate and empathetic chat around trauma, big T or little t. We have regular sections to this podcast, so look out for them. And each episode, I'll be joined by a guest who will share their unique perspective. So sit back and relax, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello everyone and welcome to Light Conversations on Trauma Podcast, and I'm here today with Sam Kukathas. Welcome, Sam. Thanks very much, Peter. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you, man. And uh, really looking forward to this discussion. And um, I wanted to ask you to start with, what's your vibe? Okay. <laughs> well, my vibe right now is excited. Great. I'm really, I'm really looking forward to, to talking to you and to, you know, offering something hopefully a bit different to your audience. Mm. Yeah, I'm really excited about that too. Good. Okay, well, um, the first topic you picked for today is riding the waves of change. Riding the waves of change. So what does that mean to you, Sam? I, I think for me, when I look at it, it... I think of transformation in, in a word, and, and I think of this expression. Um, actually, maybe it's not an expression. It's more just a shift in my thinking where for so long it was all about, like, wanting to change something as if and when there's, like, this wanting to change something, there's a coming from, oh, there's something wrong. There's something wrong which needs to be changed. Mm. And... Then what shifted in the last few years is just perceptions like, oh, what if there was nothing wrong at all? What if nothing actually needed to be changed? And what you had was just a disappearance of everything there, which you weren't happy with and which you weren't satisfied with. Mm. What, what would that look like? You know? mm. And to really peel back the layers, which are holding you back and constraining you in terms of what you see as possible for you. Mm. And, when I come from a personal perspective, what I can see when it comes to riding the waves of change is just this constant disappearance of what's been in the way of having complete freedom in any area of life. Mm. <laughs> That's beautiful. And um, yeah, I sort of had an inkling that this uh, this conversation would be amazing. And I think for me personally, that's been such a huge part of the last six months for me. And I, I kind of hit on that while I was looking into the sort of self-help world where everyone says, you know, self-improvement. And I was kind of just, I was kind of just sitting with that and kind of thinking, hang on a second, like, what if, what if actually it's an unfoldment, not a, like, I started listening to a lot of spiritual teachers um, that said it was more like an emergence than a self-improvement because that frame, that frame of reference, if we're framing ourselves as broken, then we're always starting off on the wrong setting, right? 
totally that's totally. really exciting yeah yeah no i'm i'm 100 percent with you peter yeah i think that just that narrative alone of to be able to give up the idea that there's something wrong with you but mm. to actually not just to give it up because like oh someone tells you there's nothing wrong with you that mm. makes no difference at all what I say from personal experience and seeing this for probably good for about a thousand people is that you have to discover it. You have to discover it for yourself that there's nothing wrong. Mm-hmm. You have to go back to the moment where you created this perception that there was something wrong. And if you can start to see that there's nothing wrong, your world will completely transform. Mm, yeah. That's fascinating. I, I'm hearing belief there and faith, which is something that, um, I'm interested. I mean, I know that you you deal you deal a lot in philosophy, and I'm interested in this kind of um, philosophical idea of Western thought. I suppose it's like it's really, I suppose it's really quite fitting with the Western thought model to think of something that needs to be fixed or that is not um, not a pro- like that is a process that needs like work and and progress. I suppose. Um, so that's an interesting change in, in, in thought, isn't it? I think that's where the challenge comes in, in terms of really, really discovering the fact that there's nothing wrong, actually. 100%. And it was, it was such a shift in terms of, as you touched on, I'm a philosopher as well as a coach. And mm. the, the philosopher in me had a very pessimistic view of what it was to be human because what I saw through my research into political and legal societies was just the continuation of the same patterns and the same infirmities of human nature coming up over and over again. So there there wasn't any sort of positive model that I was taking from reading these classic philosophers, which was giving me any reason for optimism. Mm. And it wasn't until I stepped into the transformative space, which was grounded in philosophy, but at a different, in a different way that I started to see, oh, there is a way for philosophy to be like completely transformative. There was something which I was, you know, spending my time on for the last decade, which was really valuable. Mm, um, that's good but to know. <laughs> this was a lens from which to look at it from a completely different angle as what is to be human. Like that's, yeah. that's literally been the question of my, of the last 12 years of my life. Yeah. And that's what, that's what excites me every day. I look at work, I look in coaching, and I look with people in my life about what is it to be human in this moment? What's going to make a difference to you in this moment? And what are your fundamental concerns? Mm, that's beautiful. And I, I kind of feel called to say thank you for that endeavour. <laughs> <laughs> we need people to do that, I think, at this time as well. But I'm really interested. So when you stepped into that transformative um, space, like what was the philosophy that was underlying that? Like, where did you have to go? What was the shift? Well, it was a shift in terms of knowing. Mm. Um, Because I think one of the things that I see at the moment very clearly is the way in which, like, if you you look at just the the Latin origins of philosophy, we have philo and sophia, which means the study of wisdom. Mm. So we are on a path to know. You know, the classic uh, image in 
Plato's Republic in book seven of the Republic, where he's talking about the simile of the cave. And you have this person who sees all these different shadows and is trapped and he finally sees the light and he wants to share with people that he's, he's come to see knowledge and, and they, they kill him. Like, they, they're like, no, no, this, is, this isn't reality. Mm. And it's, it's such a great metaphor for the, our just sort of disturbed understanding of reality as it is. But it also speaks mm. to a way of thinking, which is pursuing knowledge as if knowledge is the goal. Mm. Rather than questioning, well, what if I stood in not knowing? Mm. What if I actually, and where would that actually make a difference for me in terms of how I live my life? Yeah. Because what I've seen for myself personally is all the areas where I thought I knew something to be true, mm. that's where there's been the biggest opportunity for transformation. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the statement of I am or I have. If you imagine that language is just like Plato, right? And you get to mold it however you like, then there's an opportunity to play with language in a way which works for you rather than you feel like, oh, there's an agreement about what this word means. So Mm. therefore I have to just accept that that's what this is. Yeah. You know? No. And I'm like, I'm not playing that game anymore. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. I'm with you there. Like I know, I know language to be very powerful and it, I think as a sound engineer, as expression of an, um, of an acoustic in in the kind of embodiment side of coaching that I'm diving into and even the newer neuroscience, um, really teaches the kind of resonance of words, the way that they come through the body, um, help to tell our story. Um, they help to tell our story. So, um, yeah, um, that's really fascinating. And, and playing with that is kind of, you know, like the thought patterns, they, it really matters, right? It really matters. And, and if you're facing a, a change in your life, a really good way, not the only way, like it needs the holistic side, right? It's like, it's just one piece of it, but it's really important to get your, your thought patterns and the kind of words and what, what you're telling yourself down well, one thing around that, which this is what I really discovered in the last six months of my work, is is the way in which is looking at the nature of thought, you know, uh-huh. and, and really having to discover for myself how automatic it is. But not just automatic, how the nature of it is it's defensive. Mm. You know, like when we are justifying ourselves when someone says something, you know, automatically, it's just we're responding from that. Mm. And it's, you know, I saw, you know, a conversation with someone I loved the other day and I, I got caught off guard and that's where I went. And mm. afterwards I could see, oh, that was, that was that nature of thought coming through. That was just the defensive nature coming through. It wasn't me. That was just me responding to feeling attacked because right. that survival instinct of wanting to preserve something we call identity mm-hmm. gets like, oh, this is something which is personal to me. This is being threatened. I now have to kind of respond in turn. Mm, mm. I love what you said. I love what you said just just now about um, everything that we know is an invitation. It's like an invitation to 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 further. I think further seek and further unfold in life. Right? It's um, it's always if if something's adamant, then I know that it it's a really big part of my identity. And whilst it can be good, I mean, we all have to you know, we all have to exist here and in the physical plane. It's just, it's an invitation to, to play in that world as well. I love what you said about not knowing, because 
That's one of the biggest things that changed my my current life. You know, <laughs> it's uh, playing in the space of uncertainty, and and also grief. Grief is a huge part, you know, um, of that 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 uh, the subject of uncertainty. I think, um, but yeah, it's it's incredible when you, when you start to build a relationship with not knowing. Um, can you speak a bit more about that? Yeah, like. <laughs> so I'm, I'm writing a book. Oh, great! <laughs> uh, which I've never, I've never told anyone publicly so far. So this is the first time. But it's cool. it's a, it's a book which is called the Humean Condition because nice. I've spent my last 10, 11 years writing about the philosopher David Hume. That's what my PhD research was, was on. But separately from that, the lens through which I was looking at the world was from this 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 18th century philosopher. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that combined with the transformative learning space, I was like, oh, this is a way of looking at the human condition, which speaks to this 18th century insight. But then what's come in more recent time is just looking at what is it to live a life of discovery? And mm-hmm. what I see is this idea of not knowing. It comes up over and over again. You know, mm-hmm. I was working in a space where it's really, really high performance, um, you know, driving constantly to have to perform and the feedback on that will be intense and it will be confronting to deal with that and you have to give up sort of some conception of knowing in that space and giving up the oh i know what i'm i know what i heard i know i know what you said i know what i see no you you have to question did did i actually see Mm. did i actually hear what was being said and inside of questioning that the opportunity goes like i didn't see like, I've literally, Peter, discovered what it is to see at, at 34. Wow. And, you know, where, to give you a sense of this, like, you literally get moved by an inanimate object because you get present to the experience of seeing it for the first time as opposed to just looking at it and going, oh, yeah, I see that. I see that computer screen. I see Peter. Mm. It's like, no, I, I, I actually see him. But Mm. to see it, you have to stop with knowing. Mm. But my thought is this. You take that very basic idea around seeing and hearing, and that provides you a grounding for everything. Because you're like, okay, you know, there's, you know, to take the pandemic as an example, one of the things which is obviously so prevalent is the impact on people's mental health, Mm. right? Mm. And so much of it's going to be around how can we deal with this problem mm. rather than like looking at it from a place of what if I question this idea that there was a problem to begin with, mm. Mm. you know, like I know, you know, we see there's such a knowing in the way that society operates. Mm. There's a righteousness about it. It's like, oh, I'm, I know I have this problem, right. you know, you know, so tell me what to do to, to, to solve it yeah. rather than like, right. what if I didn't? Yeah. And, and I can speak personally about that if, if, you, if you want, or we can, you know, let you drive what's next. Sure, sure. <laughs> it's fascinating. And I was going to say, like, it's, um, it's, it touches on the many levels of identity, doesn't it? It's personal, cultural, national, like human identity even. Like, um, so that's really fascinating. I just got an eye on the time. We've got a couple of minutes left of this section. But um, yeah, yeah, it's absolutely fascinating to sort of play in that world. And um, you mentioned with the pandemic, it's such a, a great invitation to change those, you know, like, and it, it really, I, what I've, what I think is very 
like an opportunity in in this space is it it opens up it opens up a lot more around the conceptual part of life um obviously we haven't been able to go many places or distract ourselves from from what's happening you you can't really run anywhere from from a global pandemic Mm. so that changes the that changes the mind in many ways you know you have to actually face a lot of the kind of shadows that that brings up in your own in your own sort of perception so it's quite exciting but i'd I'd want to question the idea of the conceptual and and i'm coming here from just what i've experienced the last six months where as a philosopher this conceptual is the kind of the, the ballpark which I've, I've I've lived in. You know, I've uh-huh. been swinging the bat there for a long time, right. and it it really didn't work in the environment that I was that I was working in because it wasn't conceptual at all. In fact, okay. to be intellectual was a disadvantage because you yeah. already had this sort of I'm a smart person kind of thing going in, and then have to find like that's bankrupt in this in in this in this mm. realm. Mm-hmm. And what there's a difference between the conceptual and the experience, experiential. Mm. And the experience of, you know, like if I, I can see, I can see you, that's, you know, I have a concept of Peter, mm. but the mm. question of, do I actually experience you? Do I actually see, you, you know, <laughs> can I see the growth yeah. you had? Like, can I see like what's actually going on over there where you are? Like, that's yeah. not conceptual. Like that's, that's actually something which who you are in this conversation gives how I communicate to you. Yes. Yeah. I, yeah. That's great. That's really great. Yeah, and that that really plays into that kind of idea around embodiment as an experience of life, and I suppose the like learning about intellectualism, it, it only gets you so far. Like many people say, like you can't understand the whole by di- di- by a dissecting method. You know, it's the wrong tool, <laughs> and and yeah, the intellect is I'm, a very much dissecting thing, isn't it? So. Yeah, I, I really love that. I really love that in the sense that full body experience or, or f- you know, whatever that means to you, like however however far out you want to take the body because we all belong to a body of of um, of life in many ways, in my opinion. But, um, yeah, it's really fascinating to drop that. And I suppose you're dropping, you're dropping that, you're dropping the identity in that sense, right? I mean, identity is very yeah. much an intellectual concept really isn't it yeah yeah 100%, 100%. Nice. wow awesome <laughs> okay so um let's move on to the next section it's called what's my inner voice saying yeah oh that's a full body yes oh, that reminds me of something i like that what'd you do that for oh they're gonna hate me be loving what are they gonna think oh, i feel so mm, that's tasty be kind I like the smell of that. Don't be so cold. Use that language here. Why did you do that? I am love. Hey, what's your inner voice saying? So, what is your inner voice saying? Well, if I'm looking at it from a place of discovery right now. Mhm. Mhm. I have to sit with it. I can't just be like, the. <laughs> yeah. Because here's a shift for you. Like, for so long when I come to the inner voice, mm. there's a significance about the thoughts. And it's so easy, and I've definitely been this place, listening to the thoughts as if they are you. Mm-hmm. And then what if you had no say in what the thoughts were, but you had complete autonomy 
over whether you give them significance. Mm -hmm. And so then it's like, okay, there is a world. There's a world right now I'm experiencing of thought. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I've also got some memories which are coming up for me. And then I keep looking and I look like what else is going on for me internally, mm-hmm. you know? And there might be thoughts about like, oh, I can feel my butt sitting in this chair. I can, you know, I feel physical sensations and I have like a certain perception or mental state, which is at play when I'm in this conversation, We're probably excited. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's like emotions which come with it as, you know, the joy which comes with, getting to share this with you and to share this with your audience. And so that's what I, what I see. Right. But it's, it's that shift from, Oh, I've got all these thoughts. And what does that mean to there are thoughts Mm. and a quietening inside of that. Just, just, just getting stripping it down. Like, Oh, okay. There are thoughts. Mm -hmm. And then looking at like, you know, and there are times where I don't do this. Right. It's not like I'm like, oh, it's just in this sort of stage place. Of, it's like, but it's when it gets confronting in life mm. to slow it down be like, there are thoughts. And then looking, what, what do I have? Do I have any say in this? Am I actually speaking? Mm. Oh, shit, I'm not actually speaking. But I'm having a conversation. <laughs> but the conversation is just going on automatically. But if the conversation is going on automatically, then is it actually me? I know I've related to this my whole life as if it's me, but is it actually me? <laughs> what if it wasn't? Right? What if it actually wasn't me at all? Then what? Mm. Oh, then I get to choose. I get to choose whether or not I'm going to make them significant. Mm. 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 Okay? Yeah, significance. That's amazing. That's that's a great point. And because I, I think that the, like the thought stream, like you were talking about, oh, noticing thoughts, noticing thoughts. And then the, yeah, the, the memories are even thoughts that thought patterns or the, the, mm-hmm. the thoughts that we attach ourselves to and we put meaning on. And um, yeah, I'm thinking of presence here, which is, is I guess thoughts kind of take us away from presence in, in many ways, especially if they, they trigger us into, into, I'm thinking more around like traumatic, um, memory or, or like really intense emotion, put, putting yeah. us in, into the cycle of, of emotional process. But it, it kind of, that's a spectrum, I suppose, like those emotions are like energy, um, that take us away from, from the present moment of just being alive and sort of witnessing what we're going through. Um, well, it's all energy, surely, right? Like yeah. emotion, energy and motion. Yeah, energy and motion. Um, yeah. It's whether or not it's energy which serves the frequency that you, you want to be at uh, right. as opposed to something else. Right. So I guess the in, intention and I suppose a strong vision to what you want to create in your life, even if you're, even if you're healing from trauma and it kind of, it's, it seems like a future like that is not possible. Like even if you 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 have that really strong alignment and intention to that future, I think you'll probably yeah. see it. And I mean, I'm I'm certain that it happened to me. 
because I, I had this kind of st- stubbornness that I got from my family, which is great. Mm. Like sometimes it's not so good, but <laughs> it's kind of great <laughs> in this instance because even even though like all of my environment wasn't giving me the cues, I, I chose to believe that I could have a, a, a more like coherent and regulated like life in in terms of my my body and my mind so I think I think what you're mentioning there like I'm hearing the intention to align to a kind of a future vision and that it it's kind of for me it's like oh enjoy the experience like enjoy it like enjoy witnessing it like life we are yeah we are part of life no we're yeah it's not here Yes, I'm not sure what I'm trying to say, so <laughs> <laughs> I'm just very excited by this. That's all right. Like that's being in the moment. It's just yeah, like indeed, there indeed. is this kind of experience which is going on, and then it's like it's driving up, you know. Yeah. And then like then it's like, what do I say? It's yeah. like the the kind of the clincher, and that's which is obviously the nature of thought. It's yeah, like the thoughts driving up that, like, oh, what do I say next? Yeah, because I had like two or three or four thoughts four thoughts that were coming in all at the same time and some of them were yeah. conf- conflicting and I was like how do I think how do I you know it's like how do I yeah. how do I condense all this it's, it's so quickly and with so much excitement um so yeah it's very interesting um idea yeah look I I, I think it's I think it's really got a capacity to free people in a way mm. where like put it this way like in in any coaching conversation if I start by grounding people in what they're experiencing, then it doesn't matter like what the thoughts are. There's an opportunity to create a space for calmness and for peace of mind to kind of filter in. Mm-hmm. And then before you do any of the heavy lifting, you've got them back to a place of calm. You know, if they're dealing with anxiety, if they're dealing with overwhelm, you can you can bring them back to just that being in a centered place. Mm-hmm. Because I'll be honest, when I coach, I coach to be a contribution to people. And that means there is no limit to how deep I will go with someone mm-hmm. to extract what it is that they really don't see for themselves mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because they listen to their thoughts as if they're them. <laughs> so what I do is I listen for the gold in people. I listen for, no, it's not trite, their greatness. I listen for who are they really standing in the possibility of what I see for them? Mm-hmm. And from that, I'm going to speak into that only, and I'm going to speak to them only from that place. So if they're in a space where they're in a kind of victim mentality, I'll hold them, I'll create that space for them, but I won't listen to them from that mm. because that's not who they are for me. Mm. And if that's not who they are for me, then it would be inauthentic to listen to them from that. It would be to give their thought authority mm. over what's actually the case. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Yes, I agree with that. I think it's a very much a big part of the coaching process to, to like filter their thoughts for, for the client and, and, and allow the, the kind of ones that seem to resonate. And I, there's a, there's a certain energy of authenticity, I think with, with this this kind of the things that light people up the bliss the bliss moments you know and the, and you're looking to like affirm those every time right and and just and be empathetic in the process of anything that gets in the way of that and just yeah that's that's a really beautiful 
way to frame it and I think that goes back to intention as well because a lot of people are intending to um, be someone um, but maybe they don't have the process maybe they don't have um, the I guess the skills to navigate thought in some ways you know rumination is such a common thing that leads to um, you know it can lead to anxiety and depression and, and despair if and and it's and it's fair enough because we don't get trained in any of this stuff yes you know the education model is based on a very specific thing and um yeah the thing some of the things that used to be i suppose the realm of some of the religions um like um you know how to how to serve how to have faith how to how to filter thinking um mm. they they sort of aren't aren't present they've kind of dropped off in our in our societies i think so interesting and you so so you are you wanting to say there's something lost in the more secular approach to to life i think i think we do lose we do lose something about this this area with with the secular nature i think i think it doesn't really have room for any kind of mysticism and like you said mm. i mean the mysticism the concept is kind of the basis of not knowing you know building the relationship yeah. with uncertainty has to come from a sense of mysticism um yeah and the secular world doesn't allow for that it's either knowable or it's crazy like it's insane. <laughs> I mean, to be yeah. to be fair, they've picked the right word. It is insane. It's not of the same mind. It's not in, mm. it's not intellect, but it's it's not it's not it's it's not in the way that is unhealthy. You know, it's um it's a part of of life that I feel like has is being um yeah. It just doesn't have the structure it used to have, so that we can understand it. When you when you were saying that, it it reminded me of um, just the absurdity of the human condition. Okay. Um, you know, just the the way in which almost all of us are living absurd lives. Mm. The contradictory nature of the way in which we are con constantly counterbalancing. Like, oh, in one moment we think this, and then the next moment this contradictory thought comes in, and then we're like, oh, what do I do? It's in this, mm. you know. And then that that paradox of judgment is one that I like to to look at. It's the Oh, I don't want to be judged by someone mm -hmm. whilst not seem to be present to the fact that you're always judging yourself. Yeah. And you, right? have to. Like, you know, like, Oh, I'm afraid what people might think, but your greatest critic is you. Yeah. That's what your voice is saying. Yeah. <laughs> you know? That's so true. It's like, I, well, well, I saw a statistic about no and yes. I think it was like a child by the age of seven would have heard the, you know, the word no, like 10,000 times. And then it was like a fraction for the word yes. Mm. And then you wonder why the word no is so triggering, you yeah. know, for people. Because it's like there is a built-in meaning of like, there's something wrong here, mm. you know? Yeah. Yeah, there for sure. I've been reading a, a bunch around um, parenting and 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 um, and a book by Bill Plotkin called Nature and the Human Soul. Um, he's mm. talking about development and how it's actually not good to say no. Like, like as a parent, you're there to kind of 
you allow the the child to flourish out of out of um i was going to say obscurity but <laughs> just flourish as a human being keep them safe yes but the, this idea that of telling the child no all the time uh, and if we think about the neuroscience of negative bias it's like i think it's two or three times more um important the brain puts more importance on negative like threat than it does you know like excitement or whatever so yeah well, we're, that, we're i can see how that imbalanced. makes sense from a, i can see how that makes sense from a, like a very basic picture of the way the, like the function of the brain yeah. and that is to 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 create an end uh from which you will survive so it's like oh yeah. it, it functions towards an end Mm-hmm. And and it, then it continues to operate to that end. So yeah. then, anything and as we get older, obviously anything which doesn't sort of fit with that pattern is like oh, it gets uncomfortable because yeah. it's like that's what the the, ne- the neurons have been activated in that those patterns, and it's like it looks yeah. for opportunities to keep firing those same patterns at us, and we're like oh that's that's who I am. Yep, I'm <laughs> those patterns of neurons which are firing. Yeah, that gives us gives us something of reference, maybe. <laughs> um yeah i suppose i suppose that's uh no that's fascinating because thinking about reference you know like living every day um having those places of reference like this is what i like for breakfast for example you know i think a lot of us have these routines and patterns that make us feel comfortable with who who we are and and it's really the patterns of energy that matter not the not the sense of like the, not the sense that it's it confirms who we are like it makes us feel like we have reference because i suppose you know the number one um nature of physics or physical matter is that it decays and it's all chaos so uh, it's like it's quite relieving to have a bit of patterning and structure sometimes um but then again, like, I love the idea of playing in that space, like playing with playing with those patterns. I think it really, I think a really amazing thing that I I've heard quite a few times is to to do one thing that scares you every day, or do one thing that that is changed from your normal pattern. Yeah, which is a really good exercise. Totally. Yeah, it helps you to get neuro, the neuroplasticity running as well, like. Yeah. so that's really cool definitely not just like show us the child of seven and you have to be stuck with that <laughs> yeah that was a Jesuit like, saying right <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> yeah but you know, yeah we don't we've, we've moved we can move beyond the uh, seven up series approach to life mm. um i think is what is so yeah. uh gives us reason for optimism <laughs> indeed yeah i think that that's you know through technology we're now the safest population of humans ever you know, like, um, I think that was in, um, Homo sapiens, the book as well. Like Mm. we are actually the safest and most secure population of humans that have ever existed. So I think, you know, in regards to that, like some of the brain chemistry is kind of a little bit outdated in that sense. Yeah. Um, I'm not arguing that some people don't need that or some people don't suffer. Uh, we, everyone suffers to greater and, and lesser extent. Um, but on the whole, I think the culture around that is changing the, the more and more we connect, like 
having a global supply chain, having the internet so that we can drop a message to our friends anywhere in the world. It's, it's changing those things. I think it, you know, things like loneliness and isolation. I mean, they don't, they don't necessarily have to be a part of our world now that, that we can connect over distance. It's a different type of connection, but yeah. Yeah. I think there, what I see is it, it really depends on what that connection means to you. Like there's a lot of mm, people I've seen who would be like, oh, this, this isn't the same. Like I want it to be like this. I want it to be like it was. And then or I want, I want kind this of, person to do that. Right. Yeah. It's like you're desiring it to be a different way. And yeah. so you're never going to be okay with the way it is. Right. And there's a, there's a really famous expression of what is, what's so right. Like, and the, the world doesn't care ab about any of the other stuff. All there is, is what's so, mm -hmm. and you just like, you just look at, okay, what's so, yeah. well, what's so is the only way to communicate is not in person, but through um, an online portal or through this particular application. Yeah. Okay. So then speaking into that, how will I operate given right. what the intention is or whatever how that intention is going to be? Right. You know, like I can create you being in the same room as I am mm. in the terms of the experience of the conversation without you being in the same room as I am. Yeah. If I couldn't have that experience, I wouldn't have really seen my sister really much in the last 10 years. No, of course. Yeah, that, yeah. That, and yet I've, I don't experience that. I experience the, of having her, you know, much closer by than Australia. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, for sure. And I love what you're saying about meaning, meaning making. And I, d I think um, the research around grief, again, um, the sixth stage of grief, like the f almost final stage where you find closure is, is meaning. And I don't think that's like... Um, an understatement to say how important it is to the meaning that we make from different scenarios. And, you know, I can, I can feel, I can feel satisfied and seen and heard and, and, and have my voice in this conversation, even though we're not in the same room. Yeah. That's really important. And connection is everything to us, right? I mean, we're social. Yeah. Social. Totally better. <laughs> <laughs> we can't escape that we we may, yeah. some people may want to some people may think that really they're not but yeah that's yeah. there's something which is in the way of them actually being allowed allowing themselves to uh, feel like they belong and so can we absolutely belonging yeah i think that's key it's a key thing for trauma too is like they a lot of people myself included like i've been through a big journey with this like when you're when you've gone through something like like um like a trauma you you kind of lose faith a little bit in the social aspect and then you, you either decide that you're you're not a part of the social system or yeah. you you st you actively like resent it or something so totally i can yeah, i can i can definitely see that with my own life um right. when i would like become more like a hermit you know right. like if you see how i was like prior to 2017 it was like a kind of a hermit lifestyle i didn't really go outside i would just be borrowed away in the books and I was I would have described myself as an anxious person like obsessively anxious and deep in depression you know that was that I was see. where life looked like uh four years ago um and so yeah I, I I totally get and I and I was a social person who cut themselves off from people because and why because there was so much shame and 
guilt and resentment that it was just too difficult to to be a part of it all. That that was yeah. what it looked like. So I totally get where where, where you're coming from when you speak of like yeah. past trauma. But hopefully, yeah. what you can see in, in this conversation is that that's not where you have to stay. Yeah. Like whatever whatever narrative you have, if you're listening to this, yeah, it, you can be totally free of it. Yeah. Like there there are so many beliefs that I've had where I've like there is no way I'll ever be able to get over that. Yeah. And then I you know then that's what's happened. Yeah. Because I've seen what was at the source of it holding mm. me back. Or I've yeah. seen that there was some belief which I held which was erroneous. But when I and when I saw that there when there was an opportunity to step into a different existence, different reality. Yeah. That's incredible um, to mention. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, um, my pleasure. It's so, yeah, it's like the process If you're leaning into the edges and, and you're, you're, you're seeking, seeking those, those beliefs, then yeah, like you can, I've, I've had periods of my life that where the shame that you mentioned as well has just dropped away, but it does, it takes the process, takes courage, takes support from a good support network, like professional and social but yeah, like it's completely, completely possible. And, and both of us are sitting here having had that experience, which I think is a really powerful thing. I'm really grateful to share that with, with you. Yeah, I, I feel the same way, Peter. Yeah, awesome. Absolutely. All right, let's move on to the next section. It's called That's Deep. That's Deep. favorite section of the podcast, <laughs> so thanks for picking that i'm sure we've already been there <laughs> already it's a challenge <laughs> yeah but that's exciting isn't it it's like yeah. okay where where can we go which yeah. is which is deeper than where we've already gone yeah and yeah. i guess to me that's almost like you have to get controversial Mm. You have mm. to say something which is going to ruffle some feathers. Mm. Because mm. why? Because a lot of what's already going on doesn't work for people. Yeah. And sure. Sure. The, the settling into the existing narratives and speaking from personal experience didn't work for me. Yeah. So having had the opportunity to see a different way of looking at things, it's like, well, why wouldn't I want everyone to have that experience if it was possible? Yeah. If all it took was just to have a different way of communicating, if all it took was to see something differently than what you saw before, then mm. why wouldn't we want to get uncomfortable? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like mm-hmm. if that's what was on the other side of that being uncomfortable, uh-huh. yeah. then fuck, let's get uncomfortable. Yeah. You know, let's embrace that. Yeah, yeah. That's where the excitement is. I mean, it's always, it's always a part of change to be uncomfortable, right? That's almost what you're saying is like, you know, when you have a, you have a, it's like a, oh, it twists in your gut or something. You're like, oh, there's something there, you know, like you start learning to be grateful to those kind of little twists in your gut. Like, hmm, I'm, uh, I'm identifying or I'm attaching with this. Let's explore this. And, um, yeah. I mean, yeah. for me, like the prime example is like, um, the relationship with, that I had with the guy that, um, abused me as a child, like, um, I had that traumatizing experience and I guess trauma is framed as what, whatever you hold on to, whatever you can't let go of, you know, it's not the event actually, it's what, what it gives you. It's what, what it, what the process of, 
of it, it stays in your body. Yeah. So so actually the healing of trauma is actually really the letting go of um responsibility i suppose i don't know like they're still responsible for what they did but but it's the letting go of of having that having yourself tied to that having yourself tied to that person and and that's really i think that's really controversial to say that i think you know there's not much forgiveness or um compassion um directed towards like abusive people but they are part of a system of oppression, a system of abuse. And the, I think the last thing I'll say is that the number one cause of violence is, is um, in men is, is covert depression. Mm. So this, this culture fosters like this cultural conditioning for boys that isolates them from their hearts and creates depression and then tells them they can't explore that. And then they, and then it criticizes them for being violent. Um, so, yeah, look that 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 cultural environment, which is created and then perpetuated, um, mm. to to stop the cycle, you you need people like yourself, Peter, who are gonna look at it from a different place, mm-hmm. and um, you know different example but it, it reminds me of this um something called project forgiveness and what was project forgiveness it was the basic idea was there was um two neighbors and they were friends and the um one of the neighbors uh was drunk driving the car and they uh not intentionally killed um the the wife and child of the the other person and they ended up starting this project forgiveness. And what was forgiveness for? Well, it wasn't for the other person. It was for themselves. Because if they held on to whatever was there around that person, then there was never an opportunity to be free and to move forward in their life. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. and you know, so forgiveness, I think a lot of the time is not for the other. It's, it's for you. I'm not saying it can't be for the other person, but it's often for you. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, yeah, that reminds me. I mean, I I study um, forgiveness through through cultures that kind of have structurally, like, systematized it, with, not in a cold way, but a, a loving, kind way, you know. Like the Truth and Reconciliation Council that South Africa went through and Desmond Tutu, with his daughter, Mfo, wrote a book about forgiveness. It's really beautiful, and it says that thing. You know, forgiveness isn't necessarily about renewing a relationship with someone. It, it's sometimes about releasing them from your life, and that's kind of what I was getting at before. It's not, it's not about accepting this person into your life. It's about actually the fact that they're still in your life, like about 20 years yeah. after the fact you know they're still dictating your behavior yeah that's that's a really powerful way of capturing it um yeah because i think that's that's exactly what's going on you you still are having all those thoughts around what happened yeah you know and there's all the you know put in a blunt waste story around what happened and what that story means about you yeah and so to detach from that story to detach from that person is to open an opportunity to free yourself from that entire 
aspect of your past to create a blank slate to, to clear it to move forward yeah. yeah and yeah that's a simple idea that's very hard in in practice but um it's it takes kind of, it takes creating space for people you know yeah, like i've right I, i've I remember a relationship where, you know, the person I was with uh, had dealt with abuse. And, mm-hmm. you know, th- what did that mean? It, it meant that their experience of intimacy was one where having cre- having experience of pleasure was something which was shameful. Yeah. Because it associated with the abuse. So what did I, I saw my role as to take away all the significance around intimacy, to just create a space for a complete freedom. And often that just meant doing really silly things like Mm. making strange sounds and animal noises and singing silly songs because she couldn't attach herself to the significance of the thoughts which were going on in her brain when she saw this idiot, you know, uh, being in this experience of intimacy with her. And it, it, what it did was it gradually released her from this grip of what it meant to experience pleasure. Mm, that's really beautiful. That's a beautiful thing to do for someone, um, you know, reframe their experience of it. I know like people that have been through abuse, I know through my personal story, like intimacy is very tied tied up with the shame and and also like physical like traumatic anxiety can be can be in there as well so it can be a really really yeah. tough space because sure. you like it's the, one of the biggest drives for all of us you want to connect with someone you love but it, it also triggers you into your your traumatic experience so it, it can be a very very conflicted and and difficult space yeah i think it's a really great place to talk about in a way because it's it's when there isn't this open dialogue. It's when there's anything which you feel can't be said with uh, a partner mm-hmm. that there's going to be some sort of block in your ability to connect intimately. Yeah. So imagine that you can free yourself from all of that. Imagine that you have you, you create the space with your partner for any kind of dialogue, no matter what it is, whether it's talking about particular sexual desires which you have, which you're worried, will the other person judge me? Whether it's talking about something about your body which you don't feel accepted about and you you're waiting to hear, like, do they feel the same way? Yeah. You know, there were aspects of, of my body as a man, which I, you know, for a long period of time wasn't wasn't happy with. Mm. And it was only when I really hurt the way my partner would be with it, you mm. know, whatever happened physically, whatever happened, you know, there was just this space for, for me to be completely free in that area because mm. I got her complete acceptance yeah. And when you have that complete acceptance, all the other stuff is just floats away. Yeah. That reminds me of, that's beautiful, honestly. Like, it reminds me of something that I read last night. I finished off a, a book by Terence Reel about the legacy of male depression. And he, he was talking about when his father died and his father was very physically abusive. He had a lot of shame in his own life because he grew up in the depression in, in the States. And... um he wasn't able to access love and in that way. And he's on his deathbed. He said, you know, he said he had his two boys with him. He said, boys, come in. Like, I want to tell you something like at the end of the day, when you're, when you're lying in my position here on my deathbed, like only love is important. Everything else is bullshit. 
That's what he said. Everything else, I want you to understand this. Everything else is bullshit. Only love is important. And it's so true that we spend so much of our lives kind of hiding, hiding from love in a way. Like we're scared that the people that we love are going to judge us or, or reject us. Another thing that Terry Real says that he's a family therapist and sometimes he says like, um, in his books, he had a patient that said, you know, what if, what if this happens and what if she hurts me? And, and he says, well, then you'll be hurt. <laughs> and in a sense that the acceptance of the fact that, you know, relationships are relationships and that we're going to be, sometimes we're going to be in pain and sometimes we're going to hurt and it's not necessarily anyone's fault. It's just life. It's just how, how things are, are supposed to unfold in, in everyone's life, you know, like based on the capability, the capacity of, of, of consciousness that each person has, the capacity to open themselves to love. Um, yeah, this, these are the, this, this is the very nature of, of relationships. So that's, that's a beautiful thing to kind of get your head around. Like, oh, I completely accept that sometimes my partner is going to hurt me. And then as long as, as long as we're moving like forward intentionally, like obviously not, I'm not, I'm not, um, promoting intentional harm, but yeah, that's uh that's a very big part of, you know, if people hurt each other unintentionally and then you can have conversations and set, set boundaries and intentions, but you're not holding on. Sorry to interrupt you there. Yeah, period. sorry. What I, what, I, what I see, and we haven't talked about it all yet, I guess, is responsibility. Mm, and yeah. it's, and you know, the, the world of responsibility in the normal kind of conventional framework is one of blame and shame. Uh-huh. But the, what I've actually seen is because we're speaking the, the, realm, the realm of reframing language is mm-hmm. responsibility is at the core of creating real power in your life, the power to love unconstrained the the power to trust yourself with out you know being stuck in your inhibitions you know the power to take courageous action which would normally just be like oh i can't do that you know mm-hmm. i can't do that because who is i i i'm that kind of person who can't take that action yeah. you know so it's res- being responsible for a few things being responsible for the conversation that you're having about who you are really Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then questioning are you that mm-hmm. and it's being responsible for your experience of the circumstance you know like yeah. this is what's happening now what am i going to make that mean what am i going to make this interaction mean what am i going to you know the fact that this person didn't experience the level of pleasure that i did in this moment yeah. does that mean that i'm now a bad lover you know sure. or that they're going to leave me or any of that like it's all about being responsible for then the communication. So there's nothing withheld within a relationship. Yeah. If you if you hold on to something, it just kind of festers, and it continues to build and build until it explodes. Yeah, that's the key, isn't it? That is the key. Like it's what we hold on to that's the problem. It's not necessarily the thing, and like in the process of life, it depends on our experience and again our capacity. Um, and like the emotional process that needs to move through the body too, cause you can't rush that. Um, the body will tell you, but, um, yeah, it's what we hold on to, you know, 
if it's possible, you know, surrender, <laughs> let go, yes. you know, just take it forward. Like whatever, like whatever, whatever you need to do, if you need to make a decision that someone's not right in your life, then that's the decision. You need to just let everything else go. That's the decision. Or you make it, make a decision to, to keep them in your life. You know, it's, um, everything, everything is like information, right? It's all, it's all data to, to be, I've stopped, I've actually stopped thinking about memory in the same way. It's not like a bank where I put things and hold on to them. You know, it's like a resonance thing for me. If something's relevant in my life experience, it will come, mm. it will come up for me. Yeah, I, I, I can get where you're coming from. Yeah. And at the same time, I can also see that certain things just come up and you're like, where the hell did that come from? <laughs> sure, yeah. <laughs> like, well, I yeah. didn't know that. <laughs> and that for me is just about the way in which thoughts are connected. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's yeah. Just the, imagine, the power of our sort of imagination. I know that's not what neuroscience would talk about, but the power of the imagination just to connect thoughts and just like yeah. I see something, it creates a association with something else and then I'm just constantly sort of flickering between that. And yeah. why? Well, I kind of I look at it from like if what the you know the neuroscience picture is something like there's 56, 60 billion um, neurons firing, and then every millisecond they have to make a sort of decision about like which ones to connect. Mm. Then it's like oh, it sees something. Then it's like an association with something in the past, and then it's going to bring that yeah. that up. And then it's like okay, which of yeah. the sixty to seventy thousand thoughts which I'm having in a day am I going to actually uh, be conscious of, and which are the ones that am I going to make significant? Yeah. Yeah. And then there's a key, there's a key to that, isn't there? Like attaching emotion to it actually. So you can attack, like, that's what, that's what kind of pinpoints the importance of, of certain thoughts in a way, like we associate with the same energy, I suppose. Um, but yeah, it's interesting how, how consciousness works within us. Like it, it mirrors kind of the mycelial network, like where trees share nutrients, like kind of nodal centers of, of, that do certain functions that associate with each other um so yeah when you when it's it's cool to to understand that it's kind of like a fra a big fractal pattern in a way like it depends how how you've um patterned your your consciousness but um it the association thing is a great thing to understand yeah and i also love the fact that you brought up shame and blame and i would add judgment and criticism in there as well it's it's a competitive nature and we are very wired to be competitive as you said for survival but there's another completely separate circuit of care and it doesn't get activated very often and it's completely separate so the body like if you if you're fully activated in your care circuit as as a I don't know who someone who's grown up in Western society, like you might find that it, it feels very, very strange. Mm. Um, but it is, it is a circuit within our, within our body that can, you know, needs to be flexed a little bit, bit more than it has. Yeah. yeah. So beautiful. I mean, that was sufficiently deep, I think. <laughs> we, we, we've just about got it you know a little bit <laughs> okay nice well the last section here is 315 and it's just a chance to expand on anything um or bring a topic that's dear to your heart in like completely separate yeah what, what would you like to talk about yeah well i think so one of the things that i, I did um in the podcast which i developed um was 
mm-hmm. work on a different way of looking at mental health. Um, and the where it came from was from my own experience of what I would have called anxiety, what I would have called depression. Um, and having no, no longer associating myself with either of those terms, yet that being the existence which I had for, you know, 28 years or right. however many years it was, it's like it was a really profound moment to, to be in the question of, oh, am I not actually an anxious person? Mm. You know, am, do I not have depression? Mm. You know? And one thing I've seen, one thing I've, I've, I've spoken about is this idea of having versus occurring and the way the shift in language can actually create the opportunity for disappearance. Mm. And again, it comes from this idea of knowing. Because mm. if, if you know you have depression, if you know you have a disorder, Mm-hmm. You already are in a place where you're looking for evidence that that's true. Your mental state, the way in which the world looks for you, is from that lens mm-hmm. because you attach, or as a property of yourself, this phenomena, which you call depression or anxiety or something else. Mm, that's and then the right. world looks that way. And when something comes up, you're like, There you go. There's more evidence. And what happens is we get to be right about it. And we dominate people with being right. People might question that. And then if they, if you question it, holy crap, you're in trouble. How dare you? How dare you question that I have anxiety? How dare you question whether I have this disorder? You know, they are going, it's like the nature of thought on steroids. It's mm-hmm. going to come at you to them in the most confrontational way. And so they're going to bring the same level of confrontation to you in that conversation because it's threatening their identity. Yeah. It's threatening what they hold on to as themselves and what they associate as being them. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> the only way is for them to discover, what if I question this? Because if, if I'm like, well, I know you don't have X, like, fuck you. You know, like, you know, like, you know, it's, oh, it's just a series of neurons firing. Yeah, fuck you, you know. Yeah. So, you know, you can, people can give a scientific explanation. And I think science can be really useful, but science can also be a trap when it comes to something like this mm. because it gives you agreement. It's like, well, this is what's this chemical imbalance is happening. And because of this chemical imbalance, and this, for, this means this, and there's, I have a genetic disposition to that, so therefore this is what's happening. And I can't mm. control that, so I just have to make the best of life. Yeah. And that's, you know, there are so many, you know, stories of people who counter what is seen as possible given what their condition is or given what they're said to have. Yeah. And what does that suggest? It suggests that it's not true that just because you're told something scientifically that that necessarily means that this is what the actuality is in reality. Your reality is going to be determined so much by what you're willing to take on as true. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. It reminds me of like personality tests and um, and kind of the the sense that and and diagnoses as well. Like you know, like they're useful so much as saying like I'm not I'm not alone. Like I'm not 
I'm not different. Um, I'm going through something that's recognized. They're not so useful if you get identified with it and it starts becoming my, my trauma or my depression or, or you use it as a, like a way to identify as in like, Oh, I'm special. I'm, I'm a special person. And, and my life is like this because I'm a victim of, of something. Yeah. Um, I think you've thrown it perfectly there. Yeah. You know, the, you have the agreement about this thing and then you have the feeling of acceptance. I I belong to this group. So Mm. therefore I'm not alone. Yeah. Really powerful. Or there's I'm different. So I can, you know, then act in this particular way because I'm different to others. And then I don't have to belong. I can just do it my way. Yeah. And the doing it my way is pretty much how everyone does it. You know, Uh, I, I certainly discovered for myself that, you know, my doing it my way came from the most innocuous incident I could even imagine where I used to, as a child, put my hands in my food all the time. Uh, and my father would go, Sam, go wash your hands. Uh, and I'd go wash my hands. Then I'd come back and I'd put my fingers in my food. And he'd go, Sam, go wash your hands. Uh, and eventually he'd get really irritated. I know he's a very calm man, but it's still a bit irritated. He'd be like, we can't take you anywhere. You know, like you, you put your fingers, you, you know, and your toes into in the food if you could. Yeah. Um, and there was the idea is that there's some moment where the inner voice gets nasty and it's right. like a command. Cause I didn't say this, but it's like, fuck you. I'll do what I want. Mm. And that's, that's what I saw in when I was in this particular, you know, transformative <laughs> learning. Yeah. It was like, Oh fuck. Yeah. I never knew that was significant for me. Like right. it's like something I would laugh about. Like, yeah. you know, but yeah. that was the what I, you know, to see that that was being held on to. And then the whole relationship with anything to do with authority, mm. it, oh, it yeah. was just the lens and the frame of reference I had for all of it. Mm. That's really tell powerful. I, I didn't want to be a leader. I'm a leadership mm. coach, but I didn't want to be a leader <laughs> because I associated being a leader with being a political authority. I didn't have any time for authority. I didn't have any time for people who so, were so-called leaders. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's that's why I'm I'm so passionate about shifting the understanding of what it is to be a leader and understand mm. seeing that it has nothing to do with credentials and it has everything to do with who you're being. Yes. How yes. you show up in the world. That's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm very fascinated with leadership too. Um, coming from a creative standpoint, um, I think we we definitely need more creative solutions to leadership. Um, and also, yeah, like I love the I love the idea of you know leaders create more leaders. And uh, I think someone else said that cult cults create followers. Um, so. Yeah, it's an interesting, you know, true leaders are empowering. They empower people. And that's a service role rather than the competition. And I suppose, I suppose that, I suppose that the current model of capitalism that we have is very, is born from a competitive culture. So, you know, you you can understand why it, it doesn't, it doesn't breed like leadership. And I, I found it interesting. There was a thing that said, you know, the hierarchical systems of industrial, like industrial growth that we kind of our society was kind of founded in. They've completely changed. And um, 
we're living in this kind of free floating information based system now mm. that everyone you know the kids are growing up being taught one thing and getting out into the world and thinking oh holy <laughs> holy fuck you know <laughs> none of this stuff that i've been taught works in this environment yeah you know okay fine if you're going to go into manufacturing you might you might find education useful but if you're going into like any of those you know information based so you know it's it's definitely an issue we need to face yeah it's one of the reasons i'm grateful i did philosophy because philosophy mm. taught me to question okay. taught me to question everything you know mm. it, i think where as a discipline it can go wrong is it can get so sort of stuck in its internal debates and trying mm. to prove i'm right that it loses a grip on what actual impact could be make in the world if we were looking at what it looks like to question and to not be in the space of knowing in yeah. any area of life. And in that space of inquiry, something can show up, which we didn't expect. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. I think, yeah, the discernment idea and kind of questioning and being curious. And I like, yeah, I like, I like pragmatism. I like, I like that too, you know, that has a place and, and I'm not, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't ever squash the need for like financial systems or, you know, <laughs> obviously, you know, regulation is something that we, we kind of lack in this current form, I suppose, because, you know, there's, I think the, I mean, without going too deep into it, the government and the corporations have kind of molded into, to like very similar interests. So they're supposed to regulate each other. But I don't know if they're doing that right now. But yeah. yeah. It's definitely a story about interest. You know, yeah. which is, uh, something I work on in my philosophical, you know, research, but uh, okay. <laughs> slightly different to the coaching uh, yeah. that I kind of uh, play in as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, is there anything else you want to bring to? to I guess bring? I want to bring a possibility. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and... So the episode of the podcast, which uh, people seem to have found the most traction in, is this idea of why it's possible to disappear anxiety in society. Mm-hmm. And I want people to stand in that, to not just think this is a pipe trick, to mm. not just think, oh, yeah, that sounds really nice, but how? Mm. But to look at, like, what if you started to question the mm. reality of this thing called I have, I have anxiety, I have depression and start to see what questioning allowed to show up. And I don't know what's going to show up for you. That's Mm -hmm. the beauty of it. You know, if I'm coaching someone, I don't know what's going to show up for them. I -hmm. respond to what comes up. I'm not telling them what there is. I'm not saying this is what's so for you. Mm -hmm. You listen, but you're now listening for yourself to look, okay, like what is it that's actually going on? Mm. what is it that I am so certain of is true about me that Mm. works for me? Mm -hmm. Because I'm so attached to this idea that this is who I am that I don't even know who who I'd be if I didn't have this identity. Mm. So imagine that there's actually something which works, even when the other side of you wants to say there's a problem. Mm. And that's what's helping it persist. Mm. Something which is 
unconcealed from your view. Mm. And once it's un- sorry, it's, it's concealed from your view. It's con- and once if if it's unconcealed, then there's an opportunity to see something new. If it remains concealed, then what I'll say here will just run by as complete bullshit. <laughs> nice. It's a good invitation. It makes me, and it also makes me think of the work in some people are doing in somatics around transformative justice of of like holding both and you know instead of but you know a lot of us say this thing is what i want but this 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 and this you know if you hold both things as a contradiction that are conflicting i mean that's part of the human experience so then you have you start to have like you said that's where the possibility arises yeah okay and then you can start to play with it and balance those two things you know where's the good balance point how can i get this thing that i want but there's a big counterbalance energy for how can i tip that scale so that actually i'm motivated to do the thing i want because i've gotten rid of all of the things that are are counterbalancing me well you got rid of the butt right yeah that's 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 the beauty of it it's um yeah. yeah, that's 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 something we owe to uh, Werner Erhard, um, oh, okay. who is the the person who really uh, he created this idea of disappearing problems. Okay, and uh, it's a shift in language. You know, yeah, language is generative, and um, the yes. the but versus the ant here, mm. and uh, yeah, like if you look for yourself time and time again, you want to do something, but there's something in the way, and yeah. if you replace it with an ant you'd like, oh, is there an opening for action now? Mm. Because if the two things aren't related, then there's an opportunity to look newly at that same thing. Yeah, that's But it's creating a causal relationship between something which prevents there being any other pathway for action. Yeah, I think it's really fascinating. And that causal relationship that you build between things that sometimes aren't related. And that is, that is a very binding thing um, to do. And that's true innovation, isn't it? That's that's really cool. It's it's innovating um, new ways of new ways of existing, new cultures, new new systems. I don't I don't believe in burning all the old stuff down. I just I just believe that, like you said, we're truly the best place that human beings can be is generative and nurturing. Like those two two things. So let's do those things, right? <laughs> Totally. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more, Peter. Um, thank you so much, Sam, for, for spending this time with me and, um, and my audience. Um, it's a true pleasure. It's, it's, it's been an absolute delight. And you know, if, you, if, if you're interested in anything I've had to say, you feel free to re- reach out to me at the, the philosophical coach at gmail.com. Great. Yeah, I was going to ask where people can find you for sure and you have a podcast right yeah the the podcast is called this human life okay great Uh, thanks very much i'm sure i'll be speaking to you soon as well i look forward to it i look forward to the next one peter great thanks Hello everyone, thanks for listening. Peter here again and um, really blessed to have had this time with Sam today um, taking a deep dive into philosophy and um, 
existentialism and all sorts of really interesting things and um, both of our experiences and I really loved the experiential um, um, tone to this conversation um, if you want to find out more about me I'll be hanging out at Creative Essence Life Coaching on Instagram or creativeessencelifecoaching.com and um, yeah thanks for listening and catch you next time lots of love Thank mm-hmm. you.